Push Geldenies. Welcome to the Drawing Core podcast. I included for you there the sound of me making a cigarette, pouring a glass of cider, lighting the cigarette and taking one first. Inhale. I don't usually smoke, I just felt like I wanted to have a cigarette this evening, so I'd, I'd geared it up. So I was going to have it at podcast time. And I thought, well, if I'm doing it this way, why not include it in the podcast and we'll see what kind of ambiance that creates, what kind of mood that sets. Um, maybe, maybe, it was, uh, maybe it was just an atmosphere of impatience that it caused you. didn't have a particularly difficult day. How was your day? I hope that it was enjoyable or relaxing or both. And if not, then make some time for that now. Kick back. Enjoy the podcast. Certainly what I'm going to do is kicking back, taking it easy. Easy like a Sunday evening. How are you all? Are you all very well? I'm pretty well. I think um, this mood in the last podcast uh, has really shaped my year so far. It's been sort of up and down in terms of all this year opening up and then that open year inviting a huge amount of energy in. Um, and, and that, you know, that's quite, that's quite a pendulum pen, penduluming yo-yoing state of affairs so it's been it's been a lot I guess and I wasn't really sure about this podcast I settled on the topic today we're gonna talk about um, some Susan Sontag who I mentioned, in fact, is that uh, on our Christmas erotic. Uh... Oh, did you hear that? I don't know how I did that. Um, maybe that didn't come through in the recording. That was a very strange effect there. Talked about Susan Sontag on the Erotica podcast, so already she has inspired some podcast content. It's a problem with um, trying to smoke and talk at the same time. I generally do talk too much to be a good smoker. So Susan Sontag has two essays, one called Against Interpretation and one called On Style. And what I've done is I've recorded a reading of Against Interpretation. It's not too long. It's long enough. It's not too long. And I'm going to re- release that as a, as a secondary podcast this week. So if you'd like to get a flavour, a taste, a feel of that essay, an understanding of what she's talking about before listening to this, by all means go ahead and listen to that piece first. But we're not, we're not doing, this isn't a study session, this is ideas, maybe it'll even be interesting to listen to this part of the podcast first and then go back to that recording of the essay and see how that builds in your minds. Because what's very interesting is how 
Uh, our minds connect things and make patterns even when those patterns were not intended or you're, you're thinking about two very disparate things and yet just because we are humans just because the way our minds work we create things that link disparate ideas or disparate pieces of art maybe there's a um, podcaster called Connor Habib who I highly recommend this is a podcast called Against Everyone with Connor Habib and he's talked about a project of his which has been to read a book every day go and check out his podcast on that if you want to understand a bit more but one of the benefits he talks about of trying to read a book every day is that you're reading so much that your brain makes these extra connections between things and you don't just get um an understanding of Taoism, you also get an understanding, of, an understanding of how Taoism can fit with this horror story that you read, or this crime drama, and maybe some of the characters in there are a bit of Winnie the Pooh character, a bit of Eeyore character, and you, you're making all these connections, and that, that makes me excited. Because at once it's the appreciation of the work of other humans and also it's a participation in that work because you're making your own readings this is something very active and very organic but as you might pick up from the title of that Susan Sontag essay she writes against interpretation she talks about how interpretation is a kind of negative um, practice a practice that we should in fact be less involved in when it comes to art criticism and um, when it comes to our consciousness about art so I give a little we'll walk, we'll walk in a little bit to the content of her of her essays to begin with and both of the essays focus on the distinction between form or style and content so content we generally think of the substance which is being presented and the form or the style is the manner in which that content is presented and she's writing in 1965 and 1965 and talks about how the distinction between uh, form and content is already an outdated idea but one that persists nevertheless kind of covertly wields its power despite it being the opinion of many art critics that it's a misleading distinction so she talks in fact about how art and uh, the form and content can't be uh, distinguished so cleanly when it comes to art the piece of art is the style as much as it is the content and when she talks about interpretation she talks about this project of deciphering texts to uncover the true meaning quote unquote of uh, any given text this is generally the way we're trained in literature if you had um literature lessons when you were in school often you were trying to decipher the text and discover its true meaning or the um the, the intention of the author what was the author trying to say 
What is this piece of art trying to say? And she talks about how this is never really itself examined. Now we examine the work of art, we don't necessarily examine our own approach to it. An interpretation is in fact a kind of translation and when you translate you actually alter the text although you pretend just to be wiping away layers of obscurity and uncovering the truth. You are imposing certain ideas upon the text and changing its substance. So I mean tran bring, bringing, bring, bringing up translation is something I wanted to touch on as well because translators I think are a very unappreciated uh, it's a very unappreciated profession because there is such a thing as bad translation which can drastically alter your ability to access whatever the information is and for people who speak English the hegemony of English, the dominating power of English in so many pieces of culture that we consume is a huge privilege for those of us who speak English. Those texts are not accessible to people who need translation. They're not directly accessible, so they need to rely on translators, which is, you know, par for the course, it's normal. But anyone who translates will tell you how difficult that job is and how one language does not have a direct analog for so many words in another language. So you have to alter the text and you keep it as close to the original meaning as possible, but if you have a piece of art which is enigmatic, which may, be, may contain multiple meanings in it, which may contain a complexity of ideas, you're gonna read it in a certain way so if you translate it, you're going to understand what the substance of that text is in a certain way. And then your translation will reflect that. Someone else might understand it in a different way and their translation will be different. So she's calling attention, right, to the fact that um, <clears throat> the project of interpretation is not as innocent as we might initially assume it to be. So interpretation, in fact, closes doors. It kind of works against a multiplicity of meaning. And we talked a little bit about this in regards to queer in, I think, the fifth episode. So one of the things that excites me about uh, the, the queer project, as it were, is that queering things is, um, in, in how, how I see it, queering things is a deconstruction of categories. It's blurring boundaries between things and it's trying to um, help us escape from categorizations which sent, which in their essence they, they will limit what things are because they you, you draw the boundaries around it going this is this and this is this so text that might have a multiplicity of meaning enigmatic texts poetry that is not initially so clear maybe in what it's talking about the poet might very much intend that ambiguity to be part of their piece of art but if we try and interpret it to say this is what it means with a kind of full stop at the end of it 
then we close off potential meanings of that piece of art. Sorry. So she talks about the inseparability of style or form and content. And uh, one of the one of the quotes I pulled out of her second essay, not the one that I read on style, but uh, not the one I read, which is against interpretation, which is another part of this podcast, but on style, which I recommend reading if you want to continue. It's a little bit more complex, a little bit longer, a little bit uh, more dense. But one of the things she said in that is, artists and critics pretend to believe that it is no more possible to get the artifice out of art than it is for a person to lose their personality. So it's saying like the artifice, the style, is as much part of a piece of art as someone's personality is to their person, understanding their person. We can't separate a person's content and style, or we don't usually. But um, artists and artists and critics pretend to believe that it's impossible to, to do that with art. So she, she's obviously drawing attention there to the fact that actually artists and critics often do distinguish art and artifice. But her project in these two essays is to say that they're, is, is to say that they're in, inseparable and to even go further than that and say well how can we move forward from this bind and one of the one of the strongest ideas that I take from these essays is let's focus on style let's see style as itself the substance of a piece of art so this made me wonder how we might do that like in a kind of normal like what might be a common way where we already do that one thing i thought about is how we might like something for its style rather than its content so when i talk about style i'm thinking about the shallower surface of what something is not getting into the sentences inside the dialogue but rather who is speaking to you in what context are they speaking to you and my best example is something like let's say Fleabag the TV series that came out I think last year year before and uh, a, a TV series made in the UK um, and it's distinctive because it's made and the kind of showrun, con the content is controlled, the production is controlled by a woman. And it's about a very sex positive feminine character who guides the fucking story. And this is itself exceptional because most television is guided by male protagonists, masculine protagonists. The amount of fucking masculine crime dramas which are themselves a very fucking popular genre the men are often the driving characters of these and the same goes for comedy the same goes for so many other genres of television the flea bag was distinctive because of this and i think it's not a bold statement to say that that is a very progressive positive progressive feature of that series that's fucking ace that we have a series we have a television series now which are being made not just with this masculine energy controlling them but with a feminine energy controlling them 
we don't have to say much more than that. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's like I'm on board with that. But watching the series, I didn't I didn't find the content of it, the the comedy of it, the plot of it particularly invigorating, exciting or or radical. It might be radical that there's a woman in control of this series, but I felt like the comedy wasn't very different to mainstream comedy. I felt like what it was saying about um, feminism, about women, about sexuality was not exciting my uh, radical receptors. But I might like Fleabag because of its context, because of its style, rather than because of its content. And I think perhaps we do this with bands because we like a certain kind of music. We like a certain, maybe we like uh, 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 women singing rather than men singing. And again, that might be to do with how underrepresented women have been in music industry. So there we might find ourselves already um, making our artistic minds up on the basis of style rather than the basis of content, finding the substance of our artistic consciousness in style. And we've talked uh, quite a little bit about um, hardcore techno and especially about its use of samples. Well here maybe we also see something going on like this because the content we might say is the drum. But when we use a drum noise and we reappropriate it into a computer program and we're adding layers of drum noises on top of each other, we are playing then with the style of the drum rather than the actual drum itself. So I'm gonna we'll share a song which is which is very heavy on its sampling at the end of this podcast to give an example of this sort of style over content. So Susan Sontag suggests foregrounding for, for style or like artifice or uh, shape, form. However we think about the distinction between content and form, content and artifice, content and style, whatever might, we might consider removable or decorative, this way of presenting, actually taking that as our foremost consciousness about a piece of art this she, she she says this doesn't mean creating what she calls stylized art and what well, the way i understood stylized art is art in which the subject matter the content is objectified in such a way that reduces the art so the my my best example i can think of for this is um the neon demon so this is a uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the director uh, he, he directed something called Drive and both Drive and the Neon Demon are very heavy handed on their stylistic choices so Neon Demon is uh, has really good lighting it's quite slow it's very eerie the music is very it gets under your skin the scenes are often long and it is about um, a, a woman who is being drawn into this very misogynistic, uh, uh, exploitative Hollywood world as a as a model, as a a young star, 
And the problem that I could see with this film is that it's so focused on this style and it presents its style as such a strong part of what the film is. Like the story is not particularly the driving force as it were, like your experience of the film is much more likely to be affected by the way in which it's presented. That we kind of lose empathy, I believe, for the main character. And although it might be a critic of how women in her position are exploited and abused, it's objectification of that character and it's, it's distance from it because it's so stylized, we are, we are so distant from her that she is objectified and in fact kind of abused or exploited for the purposes of creating a scene that is illustrating this exploitation. But it doesn't quite, doesn't quite achieve a critical distance where we're on her side and we're feeling that like that pain of her being exploited. We are more reveling in exploitation, so it it kind of shoots itself in the foot in a way by focusing so much on style in stylistic exploitation. It's all stylized. She is stylized, and her humanity is sort of. Um, diluted and lost. So rather than stylizing like this, Susan Sontag calls upon us as theorists or artists to examine in detail the formal function of subject matter. So how in fact is the content another aspect of style? So <clears throat> she brings to attention the expressiveness of art. So trying to respect that art exists in the world, like it's not just about the world, it is a thing in the world. And it's an experience. And that's how art can transform us. It can have transformations inside it. So we might, she sort of um, gets close to what I think of as annihilating the subject. But I think that that's that for me. I don't. I don't quite know how to distinguish that from stylizing the subject, where the subject is objectified, and we kind of lose. We kind of exploit the subject. We kind of exploit and abuse the content. But actually, her annihilation of the subject is something like absorbing the subject into the style. So I think there's a back and forth here. So one way I was thinking about it was like. How I she mentioned I mentioned before her thing about person and personality how we can't separate these two things. So I thought about how we might wear our style. We stylize ourselves. We not stylize, but we use our style. And but we have a kind of content, like a, a sort of like in internal truth or something. Our beingness, which we don't necessarily present because we we might literally um, decorate ourselves with makeup, with clothes, our way of acting with people, our performativity. This is all kind of surface level style. And I think that whilst that seems a sort of shallow part of a person, because um, 
when we do that kind of thing we're working off scripts right we're we're working off pre-established truths like we know what this kind of clothing indicates because it's sort of been decided for us we're it's not our true content it's us playing a game with certain kinds of style but in fact like you know we we understand the world in terms of scripts like we use that to read content to read character to understand people so although we might be using it as a tool on the surface level it's also how we understand it's how we access the content of other people of even ourselves so i think it's important when you to think this this uh, shows how important it is to think of style and content as like two energies that are kind of constantly affecting each other we can't really understand the content without understanding its style it doesn't mean so much without it being pre without knowing its presentation we also can't understand a presentation of something without kind of having access to the content if we like like this neon demon film we don't really have access to the content of that character so the stylization is divorced from her and in in that particular case it's kind of disturbing because of that i mean she talks also she has a very famous essay about camp which i haven't read but like camp culture she talks about that being stylized culture so that's just existing on the style on the style plane really and we, we are kind of divorced from content and she talks about that being a limited kind of culture because of that but if we want to kind of avoid that we want we want to surpass those limits then we need to be seeing style and content as part of the same totality and also if we're going to like we we already have this distinction you know like it's going to be impossible for us to start seeing art as not part style and part uh, content we're not going to be able to get rid of that distinction because it's so much part of our understanding so then seeing those two things as passing back and forth constantly constantly affecting each other like the yin yang always rolling over from one to the other they're not being two separate things but so much as two things that are constantly informing each other and therefore creating the whole so this is this is how i understand what she is calling for and it's it's interesting for us for you and me because i feel like it echoes a little bit this podcast project <clears throat> so from the very beginning the style of this podcast has been as important if not more important than its content so we talk about things which i said i've said many times i think are important subjects to bring into conversation but the bringing into conversation is achieved more by the fact this is just me chatting to you and we have this piano and this purring in the background to sort of suggest to us an intimate friendly cozy atmosphere because i think that conversational reality allows us to be more in communication more equals more understanding is achieved through intimacy i'm rolling another cigarette now because 
I think I'm getting so much into talking. I don't uh, have much tobacco, so this is going to be a short-lived um, smokers retreat. I'm not sure why I'm, on reflection, I'm really including this in the podcast, except there's something that occurs to me. I don't want to make this a very personal podcast I've said many times I think that's sort of beside the point but then when I say to you that I want to create an intimate conversational space that is sort of personal so I don't want there to be a mediation I don't want there to be an interpretation between what I'm saying and you I tried to say enough and talk in a way enough that means I'm not taking authority, that I'm not saying this is how this is or this is how that is. I think it makes a huge difference if we have someone in our lives who says to us all the time, this is what's going on. We watch a movie and they're saying, yeah, this is happening because of this. Like, This is what the artist is saying. This is what the art says. Compared to someone who might do the same but say, I think this is what's happening. Or... This is what I can see. Or this is how I understand this. Just putting those few words in front of our opinion, I think changes it changes the personal relationships going on there. And that's really the spirit in which this podcast has been able to start and continues. Because I believe that this is a substantial endeavor this is this is something good to be doing because it foregrounds that empathetic way of relationing i think that the most interesting ways we can continue to make art <coughs> is to make art that breaks down hierarchies between the art and the audience, the performer and the audience. And I think that this is quite a, maybe it has always been, but I think this is a distinctive time to be doing it. My opinion is that like, this is a good thing to be doing now because often people suffer from not having a sense of their own power, them, them feeling like they don't have much impact on the world and especially people who are younger in these old days of capitalism where they have less opportunity where there are narratives of early capitalism which are no longer applicable and yet are still very strong we talked in the last podcast about feelings of um feelings of success and like I think it's very easy to feel like a failure because success is measured very narrowly and in fact um, the system in which we live has taken away some of our means of accessing that same success that it pushes us to attain and it's pretty cruel when you think about it So, in 
building our anti-capitalism or our activism or our empower our self-empowerment in 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 actualizing and self-determining ourselves i think we need to do more or less what is going on in these susan sontag essays right like uh, she, like it's it's kind of the content is not intelligible without style style is the intelligibility so we need to talk about climate change for example in ways which are relevant and understandable to people who have no say background or technical knowledge because something like something like science whether it be climate science or uh, medical science is a very gate is there's a lot of gatekeeping involved there are certain experts and the rest of us are expected to trust those opinions but that kind of gatekeeping is naturally manipulative you have to categorize the people that know and the people who don't know Whereas our little drawing project here is hopefully creating a sense of being together inside of conversations that are interesting. Yani, Taoism is not something that is inaccessible to us because we've done it together. You know, we have our own way of understanding and it doesn't have to be a full academic way of explaining and saying what is or what isn't. But there's a kind of active participation, which means we've already achieved that, um, bringing that into our lives. And it's not that we have so much content. It's that in our style, we have, we have accepted the reality of like, yeah, we can talk about that even though we're not experts. I hope this is something, I hope that people aren't listening to this thinking... I hope you're not listening to this thinking like, uh, yeah, don't quite achieve that. Doesn't, I don't quite buy that. I hope that you're thinking, yeah, like this is something I know from listening to this podcast. That depends on how successful we are. So one of the other quotes I pulled out of this second essay is on she's talking about art and morality and rather than trying to use interpretation to determine the moral of a story she says that the moral pleasure in art as well as the moral service that art performs consists in the intelligent gratification of consciousness so it's not telling us how to think it's provoking our consciousness into thinking so again we are particip participants in this project we are not students to be told what's going on and so I'd like to kind of wrap up this little meander around um, these Susan Sontag essays by, um, by finishing talking about she, she talks about reclaiming the sensuous so in the, the last line of the uh, on style essays rather than a hermeneutics we need an erotics of art so rather than an attitude towards art which is about what is and like how to translate and interpret and dis, dis, 
decide and define. We want an erotics and there's a, there's a wonderful essay which perhaps is another good one to record a um, audio version of but um, in fact there is already an audio version on YouTube by the author and it's called The Power of the Erotic by Audrey Lord. and she has a very very powerful reading of this on YouTube which I highly recommend and when we talk about erotics we're, we're talking about that sensuousness we're talking about a kind of emotive or emotional engagement with something rather than a academic engagement with something so uh, just just to give a small quote from that Audrey Lord text within the celebration of the erotic in all our endeavors my work becomes a conscious decision for a longed-for bed which I enter gratefully and from which I rise up empowered so it's kind of about appreciating the humanity in your work. It's being able to connect your endeavours, whether they be something that is building you a feeling of success um, or whatever, whatever you're doing, being able to connect that with an emotional core. And I think er an er erotics would be a good um, subject to do another podcast on. And it's not talking about the sexual. Audre Lorde's um, essay in fact, it tries to disentangle our ideas of the sexual and the erotic. And when she talks about the erotic, she talks about something that does essentially empower you because it connects. It's, it is an empathy between your work and yourself, or between work and yourself. Like, I hope that this podcast as a piece of art is very vital. Like, it's, its vitality is in that closeness to humanity in that closeness to the imperfect passion of emotion that is our kind of is our lot as conscious beings as humans as whatever whether or not that wraps anything up i don't know um this is i think i feel like this podcast is going into a style of unfinished thoughts and i'm very i'm pretty happy with that pretty happy with that so this is another unfinished thought in a way but hopefully something has spoken to you has uh, touched to your erotic root has wrapped its finger around your erotic branches and twiddled them a little bit and as ever we're gonna listen to a song now which is gonna completely destroy the comfy cozy mood but um, hopefully it'll be of interest um, something that I'm very passionate about a, a, t a particular genre of music which is also a record label is Gabba Disco and Gabba Disco is hardcore techno Gabba is a very bang 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 kind of hardcore techno but Gabba Disco is a very modern style of Gabba which includes a lot of samples and a lot of rich old alternate context so you wouldn't think of Gabba in terms of this song and that song and this song but let's bring them together and see what kind of crazy shit erupts from that so let's see if this uh, Gabba Disco song can um, excite in you the ideas which I've um, brought up which we've touched upon in our podcast
but we're looking like we did before at hardcore techno at these sort of layering of of samples and how that creates a new context because of this essentially stylistic work um but uh, um, a little example of how it can rather than be a stylized work which is divorced from the content if we use content which is songs that we already know like all the songs that are sampled are like not all of them but lots of them are ones which you will know because they're very famous or popular songs especially in the west so you already have a feeling towards that and I believe that it uses them in a way which is perhaps critical perhaps decontextualizing perhaps funny perhaps taking the piss out of them because it transfers their context so much but also pays them the kind of respect of recognition when you listen to that song when you listen to this song and you think oh I know that sample that feeling of recognition is satisfying and I think it satisfies in an emotional or an erotic way so okay that yeah that's that i'm not going to talk anymore i think we've had a long enough podcast and i'm going to leave you now with a song um i don't know what's the name of this song give me a second i'll just find the name of the song so i had to have a little pause there to determine which song we were going to share because there are many gabba disco tracks and it took me a while to decide which one and i just wanted to get the name right to share with you before you listen the song is called think satan and it's by dj booger eater but there are 24 or 25 gabba disco releases on their website um, and there are all sorts of crazy samples being used across so many songs so um, there's a lot of content there for you to get your teeth into this one i think is in a way the easiest to connect with because you're most likely to recognize the samples it's very melodic and and very funny and joyful and that's the kind of shit that that's my jam so um thank you for joining again um take care of yourselves be kind to yourself be kind to other people um uh, Hadi bye bye.